Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Wu Do with Jason Bingham. Uh, today we are greatly pleased to have Dr. Alex Haynes. He's the Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Division of Surgical Oncology at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also the Director of the Safe Surgery Division at Ariadne Labs. Uh, additionally, he uh, fulfills a role as Special Advisor to the Board and Chair of Research and Evaluation Committee at Lifebox. So, Dr. Haynes, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and we also have uh, Sarah Kessler. She's the director of communications at Lifebox and uh, made these introductions for us and is uh, actually responsible for us doing this podcast. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Dr. Haynes, uh, so if you could just, just to start off, just give us a little bit of background yourself, um, you know, where you came from, uh, where you did your training, uh, what your clinical practice is, and then how you got involved um, with this all this Lifebox stuff. Great. Well, it's a, a little bit of a long and winding path, and I think that's a, a, a good thing to think about and think about as people think about uh, their own careers. Um, I uh, had a career in public health before I got my medical degree. I went to Columbia and got a master's in public health and worked around uh, programs in implementation best practices in HIV care, a little bit far afield from surgery or global surgery. I was working in New York City, which can sometimes feel like another country, but um, I then decided to go to the medical school and get my get my medical degree and um, went to Wayne State in Detroit, uh, got my MD and found surgery and fell in love with surgery. It wasn't what I expected at all. I expected to go do infectious disease, but um, realized that a lot of the same problems that we were seeing in HIV care were there in surgery. The idea that we know what to do, but there's barriers to us actually doing those things, be they barriers around systems that, you know, uh, uh, inhibit provision of appropriate and high quality care, or be it just lapses in, in consistency around really complex care delivery. And so I uh, was fortunate enough to do my uh, surgical training at the Massachusetts General Hospital. I took two years out during my training and worked as a research fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health with uh, Atul Gawande as my, my mentor. And at that time, we were approached by the World Health Organization, uh, World Alliance for Patient Safety, to help develop the uh, safe surgery checklist. And we brought together people from around the world, and experts in surgery, anesthesia, infection control, biomedical engineering, across the board. And through an iterative process came up with this tool. I then led the pilot study that established its utility in eight sites around the world and have since been involved in, in the evolution of the checklist over the last 10 years. This, this year actually marks the 10 year anniversary of the launch right. of the checklist. We can talk a little bit more about that later. I returned to my, completed my surgical training and then did a fellowship in surgical oncology at MD Anderson. 
and um, now I've now uh, been at uh, MGH for, for five years uh, on staff. I have a clinical practice that's largely focused on soft tissue sarcoma and melanoma. I do a little bit of general surgical oncology as well. Um, and I spend about half my time at, at Ariadne Labs, a joint center for healthcare delivery and innovation at the Harvard School of Public Health and Brigham and Women's Hospital, looking at developing in, uh, interventions to improve the quality of surgical care everywhere. Lifebox is born out of the checklist. Um, in developing the surgical safety checklist, there is one item on the original checklist that requires a piece of equipment, and that is a pulse oximeter. It was a huge discussion that we had at the time about whether or not we should do this, because the goal of the checklist is for it to be applicable to all environments. And there was a lot, a, a huge, uh, discussion about putting the pulse oximetry on the checklist. First, in high-income settings, it's sort of redundant. You know, yeah. we, we would no more do surgery at the Mass General without pulse oximeter on the patient than I would, you know, not wash my hands right. or, you know, not wear, you know, not wear gloves. But there are many parts of the world where that's not the case. And the World Federation of Society of Anesthesiologists had long been campaigning and a number of, a number of our collaborators, both with the, the checklist work and with Lifebox subsequently are, are key members of that organization, had really been campaigning to make pulse oximetry standard of care worldwide. But one of the barriers to that was equipment and that it's fine and, and you know fine to say that pulse oximetry is the standard, but if there are no pulse oximeters, what do you do? And so realizing that we created this this mandate, you know, it's not only on the checklist, but it's also in the simultaneously published WHO guidelines for safe surgery that sort of spell out what are the minimum expectations for, for, for surgery in any yeah. environment. We thought it was incumbent upon us to develop a way to, to reach out and create that. And so we began developing a, a relationship with industry to spec out a low-cost, high-quality, durable pulse oximeter that would be appropriate for all low-resource environments, but at the same time provide the same quality of monitoring, the quality of information that would pass muster in a high-income setting, you know, not just a $10 clip on the finger pro, you know, uh, oximeter that you can get on Amazon, but one that's actually medical quality. And so out of that work, which began with the WHO, but then quickly became clear that the WHO really, it's not a implementing organization. It's not a, you know, e equipment provisioning organization. There need, there's a, a vast need for, for something else to help with that. And so Lifebox was born out of that. The mission of Lifebox is not pulse oximetry alone, although mm -hmm. the particular need for pulse oximetry gave birth to Lifebox. Lifebox's mission is safe surgery and anesthesia. And anesthetic monitoring is one, one part of that. In fact, when we developed the Safe Surgery Saves Lives campaign, we identified four domains of safe surgery safe anesthetic monitoring, but also surgical, uh, surgical infection prevention, uh, teamwork and communication, and um, measurement and monitoring. And those are sort of the four pillars of safe surgery. 
So what's your reach right now? Have you actually been able to follow through on delivering these pulse oximeters? Yeah. So so as of recently, Sarah has informed me we've passed 17,000 pulse oximeters wow. distributed. Um, and one one key component of Lifebox is that it's not just – it's not an equipment provision organization. Every Lifebox oximeter that we deliver is accompanied by training. Right. It's not, it's not just here's a box of oximeters. Go for it. We provide training – in the sort of fundamentals of of monitoring oximetry, you know, if you're not in the habit of monitoring continuous pulse oximetry, understanding that isn't necessarily intuitive. Even for those situations where where physicians are providing anesthesia, a lot of environments it's not physicians; mm-hmm. it's uh, you know technicians or nurses or even sometimes just uh, you know the janitor who's been uh, roped into doing that. Um. But also training around teamwork, around use of the checklist. We frequently will pair um, oximetry delivery, oximeter delivery with checklist training, with team training for the organization. And we've recently launched a new initiative called Clean Cut that seeks to build on the model uh, that's been so successful for us of oximetry distribution to the problem of surgical site infection prevention. Uh, it's been piloted in Ethiopia over the last couple of years and is really using a process mapping technique to identify opportunities for improvement, to teach some of the principles of quality improvement to professionals in low-income settings to begin to tackle the thorny issue of surgical site infection prevention. So I was wondering if we could just take a step back and maybe for people out there who aren't uh, familiar with you know the, con- the, che- the checklist you know concept – how that how we how that arose, um, and then how this what are the specifics of the checklist that you're referring to, um, and what went into developing that? Great. So checklists have existed for a long time um, in a variety of industries. Uh, aviation first began using checklists in in their uh, duties uh, in the 1930s, um, but it, it's really been slow to to make its way into healthcare. So the first big example of a checklist in healthcare, and, and when I use the term checklist, I don't mean any list that has boxes next to it. I mean a tool that's intended for team-based conduct of care, that's intended to be used verbally, and is intended to provide specific process checks along with prompts for communication. Um, but the, the first example of this was first well-known, uh, uh, well-publicized example was Peter Pronovo's work and the, the group at Hopkins around uh, CLABSI prevention and using a checklist for central line insertion. It's now mm-hmm. become very routine in most environments. They showed through a large-scale collaborative in Michigan that they were able to drive the rate of CLABSI to effectively zero through through this work. We were inspired by this work when the the World Health Organization approached us about engaging in a project to improve the quality of surgical care around the world, that we could apply similar principles from you know, this very simple procedure, central line insertion, to more complex procedures. And we, as part of the WHO mandate, the tool we developed had to be broadly applicable, not just a tool for poor countries, not just a tool for rich countries, but something that could be used in a variety of environments. The, 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 the checklist, what came to be known as the World Health Organization Surgical Safety Checklist, um, 
wasn't just something that a bunch of us sat down in a room and yeah. put some nice ideas on a paper. It was created through a process, a process of convening experts from around the world to understand what is the state of knowledge around surgical safety? Where are the points that we can, not just that we know our problems, but that are intervenable and that we can fix, you know, in the, clearly defined setting of the time that a patient's having surgery. So, you know, some of the sort of better training or things like that are really important, but you're not going to be able to address that by a group of people about to ha to to perform an operation. Yeah. We did a, a survey at that time, or a, rather a, a study to assess how much surgery is being done in the world. You know, we asked that question in 2006 there was no way to answer that question. Nobody had an answer. And so we kind of, you know, beat the streets and, you know, made phone calls and emails and letters to ministries of health and other data holding organizations were able to come up with a sampling of data around the, the volume of surgery and put that together and were able to create an estimation of the global volume of surgery at that point. And it, you know, it turns out that at that point, there were nearly a quarter, a quarter billion operations being performed every year around the world. A lot of that skewed towards high income countries, but at the same time, there was a ton of surgery being done in low resource settings and understanding that we knew that you need to be able to provide tools so that surgery could be done in the safest way possible. So we brought together these groups, we decided on some of the items for a checklist. We created a gigantic list of all the different things that could potentially be included on a checklist and gradually whittled it down to something that would be usable. You mm -hmm. know, And so we, our, our checklist ultimately came up to have 19 items on it. We divided it into three pause points, you know, times in the process of care where the team could stop for two minutes and do a check. And so we, we call, we call the three phases, the sign in, the time out and the sign out phases. Yeah. And are intended to be points where the team can both ensure that critical processes have occurred, um, with 100% reliability rather than, you know, 99.9% .9 reliability, but also make sure that everyone on the team is sharing information in a way that is across disciplines that allows people to develop a shared sense of purpose and allow people to develop a habit of communication that encourages speaking up and encourages communication in the operating room. Um, we then did uh, several rounds of small scale testing where we asked people to test it for, you know, one day in their operating room, made further refinements, and eventually came up with the tool that we tested in a, um, a pilot study across eight sites and four for lower income countries and four higher income countries around the world. Ultimately, in a, nearly eight thousand patients, and looked at what does surgical care in these places look like before and after introduction of the checklist. Now, that study wasn't designed to fully implement the checklist in every place. It was focused on between one and three operating rooms at each hospital. It was really intended to, as a proof of a proof of principle. If they do it, will it work? And right. what we saw was a significant reduction in complications and mortality after introduction of the checklist in those sites. And that led to the official launch of the checklist in um, the spring of 2008 and ultimately a publication of our findings in the New England Journal in January of 2009. So just if you what are broadly you know define define the the problem before institution of the checklist the rough numbers what were you looking at as far as complications and what in it in the checklist or what specific things in the checklist do you think are having that effect so th these are these are two questions that i get asked all the time about this the answer to the first is probably not 
all that meaningful because we weren't trying to understand the pop the 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 complication rate at a population level. Yeah. We purposefully selected the operating rooms doing the highest risk surgery at the each hospital yeah. because we want to be, be able to statistically demonstrate a difference. And if you start with you know studying this in hernia repairs or cataract surgery, you're going to have a very hard time showing an improvement in mortality because those Hopefully. operations yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, have very ex- exceedingly low mortality to begin with. We instead chose the operating rooms where they're doing abdominal surgery, thoracic surgery, and the like in order to, to show a difference. And, you know, in the study, the, the, you know, the pre and post complication rates, uh, or mortality rates for each, uh, each, um, site were in the, you know, close to 4% before, before, um, introduction of the checklist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, relatively high, a 4% yeah. mortality rate. But again, that's reflective of the kind of rooms that we were, were choosing. In terms of what items on the checklist make a, dis- a difference, it's, it's impossible to pick apart the parts. You know, the study was in no way designed to look at individual items. Yeah. And I don't really believe that you can pick apart individual items. I think the power of the checklist isn't necessarily in you know, doing a specific thing. It's about the culture of teamwork in the operating room. We've subsequently done a variety of work looking at that, in, in, mainly in the United States setting. But in this study, we did a, a small peek at how culture changed. We used the uh, safety attitudes questionnaire, a validated tool to measure uh, teamwork in the operating room, to measure teamwork, the, the culture of teamwork in, in safety in these operating rooms before and after the intervention. And we saw that there was a, you know, a striking linear relationship between the degree of improvement in safety culture and the degree of improvement in complications and mortality af- afterwards. So I think really the way the checklist work isn't by getting people to get antibiotics in more often or things like that. We have other ways of doing that, particularly in the United States. There's a lot, you know, we've kind of you know, uh, maxed out our ability to have timely, uh, appropriate timing of uh, antibiotic prophylaxis, for example, but rather in the activation of a team in such a way that they're communicating appropriately so that the anesthesiologist knows what the surgeon is doing and vice versa, so that the surgical tech feels like they can speak up if they see the surgeon contaminate herself um, to, um, you know, being willing to say, "Hey, we need to stop for a minute. Things aren't right." Yeah. And I think that's it's, it's hard to measure that because mm-hmm. each of those situations is a little bit unique. But in, but I think that's where the power of the checklist lies. Do you see differences in the improvement between the the low the low socioeconomic or low income and the higher income areas? In terms of the sort of you know relative reduction, yeah. not much. Um, okay. The the absolute values are certainly bigger the you know the the uh, pre-intervention mortality rate in the high income countries was under 1% um so you're talking about a much smaller yeah. percent reduction but overall when you look at it the sort of magnitude of reduction is very similar in in, in all sites is you know different different everywhere so tell us a little bit more about you know the the actual um equipment that that's being provided um if you could 
Uh, for instance, like how much does it cost? How is it being paid for? You know, all those type of questions. I'm sure you get asked all the time. Well, so so focusing on the oximeter um, and, and is the the main part of um, of LifeBox. So the oximeter is um, a battery chargeable device that also can be be plugged in. It ha- comes with an adult pro, but also a neonatal finger probe that we've been working on uh, helping to refine and improve. Um, the cost of it is about $250, but that's not, that's what that actually reflects is not the total cost because there's also training that's involved. Yeah. There's also, uh, you know, the organization that goes behind it. One of the kind of key powers of Lifebox is that it really is a peer to peer organization and that we rely very heavily on networks of surgeons, anesthesiologists, nurses, uh, hospital administrators around the world to help both identify where there is need for for oximeters but also to help organize and deliver training programs we've developed a lot of training curricula that are used with with the oximeter that can be delivered in different environments we rely on our volunteers to help deliver them the organization is a nonprofit organization we're not selling oximeters we're mm-hmm. trying to provide and, and we really don't see our model as being a you know competitor with the commercial provi- you know uh, mm-hmm. manufacturers of oximeters one of those manufacturers is who manufactures the light box we don't have a factory uh, anywhere that's making oximeters but rather we're trying to fill a need in an environment where the regular market doesn't really reach and doesn't really and doesn't really cover the full need because it's more than just the, the device itself it's the systems of care that surround it so one of the key concerns about global surgery driven by uh, these major academic medical centers is the question of sustainability and I'm just curious, where does, you know, what's Lifebox's philosophy on on sustainability? Where does this all fit in for you guys? Yeah, that's a great question, a really, a really critical one. Um, the whole point of Lifebox is born out of an observation of the importance of sustainability in these interventions. You know, particularly when it comes to medical device provision or equipment provision, it's a, you know, it is a thorny issue in global surgery. Um, there are all too many situations of both inappropriate uh, equipment donation or situations where, you know, equipment is donated and yet no one knows how to use it or it, you know, is lasts for a while and then it's gone. One of the key things that we really seek to do in our program is to try to address some of that by incorporating training, by incorporating um, a, a ownership of the oximeter. You know, we try to give the oximeter not to organizations, but rather to anesthesia providers because they're the ones who are actually using it. One of the things that is seen sometimes with you know, quote unquote expensive equipment provision is that it gets locked in a cabinet because there's a fear that if something happens to it, someone's going to get in trouble. And so instead of being used for patient care, it sits locked in a cabinet yeah. because it's so valuable. And we really try to make sure, do our best to make sure that that doesn't happen. I'm sure it happens somewhere. You know, we, we can't follow up explicitly on all 17,000 oximeters. But when we've gone back to revisit sites where we've distributed oximeters, we find that they're in place. We do active surveillance. We help with maintenance of the equipments. Um, we have uh, a, uh, uh, 
technical support in the form of uh, Remy, who sits in, in in London and is you know available to, for people to uh, help make sure that their oximeters function. We do some degree of follow-up in general, but then in certain individual focus projects have have follow-up. And what we found is that people keep using these. You know, they're a really powerful tool, both both in terms of just simply it's an oximeter and allows you to see what couldn't be seen before. But it's also a symbol of importance and professionalization for the anesthesia providers where they're able to really become a, a more valued and respected part of the team to be part of that communication and allow for for safer patient care. Uh, so, how do you choose, or how do you decide choose where to distribute these? So that's a great question. Um, I, I I'd say that it is different in every instance. Um, sometimes it is a um, you know a physician in a work you know a in a particular country or region approaching us and saying, we've got this need, we need it. Sometimes it's from a, um, a, a U.S. or U.K.-based anesthesiologist or surgeon who's visited or has a contact in a location and sees that need. Sometimes it's through uh, connections through other uh, NGOs and the areas where they do work, and sometimes it's through conversations with ministries of health. And all those different routes lead us to identify where there's need. One thing that's that we're you know really clear about is that we try to, to make sure we're doing our work where there's really need and where we're wanted. We're not trying to drop off oximeters in places where they're not wanted. We're trying to make sure that there's places where there's both a need, but also an appetite for what comes with the oximeter, with for the training, for the uh, sustainability. Um, and so what kind of feedback, you mentioned a little bit of feedback, but so it seems like this is kind of incumbent on there being some level of kind of understanding of what to do with the information before you go in. But you do do some training, uh, you said. And yeah. and then also, in addition, um, you know, wh- what kind of feedback are you getting from the providers? Are they, uh, what kind of interventions are they making uh, based on the, the data that they're getting from this thing? Well, so, you know, in a lot of these settings, in the majority of settings where we work, Pulse oximetry isn't totally alien to sure. them. They have they understand the idea. How trained the anesthesia providers are in the you know um, um, pathophysiology of hypoxia yeah. is variable. Um, some places you have trained physicians delivering anesthesia, and for, in most of those circumstances, they're very familiar with with pulse oximetry and how to use pulse oximetry in delivery of anesthesia. Other places where it's other non-physician providers, that's it can be really variable. So part of our course, it begins with physiology, uh, you know, basic primer in, in, in gas exchange and and uh, uh, the, the function of the oximeter in assessing oxygenation. The there are a variety of different forms the training can take, you know, really depending upon the location, and this it's really tailored to the needs of the providers there. Um, it can you know be a very brief training you know, about the the device itself, along with its use in the checklist, or it can be a much more involved couple day course around safe anesthesia provision. So two tough questions, um, long term. Big plan. What is the reach you hope to accomplish? And second, uh, like what's stopping you from getting there? That's great. Well, the, I mean, in some ways, the, the first question is an easy answer. The, the answer is 
that every patient everywhere in every part of the world when having anesthesia will have continuous pulse oximetry by a trained provider working in a team that functions as a team. So that's 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 the goal when it comes to oximetry um, or, or really to the teams in surgery. I think ultimately th- there is no end goal because safety isn't an end. It's a way of working. And what we want to be able to do is to teach not just these individual actions, but rather the culture of safety, the way of working that that maximizes safety in the operating room. Right. That's why programs like Clean Cut are really important. We've we've begun to develop a, a, a set of terminology around the problems we're trying to address. Because the problem we're trying to address isn't lack of pulse oximeters. Right. It's a system of care that doesn't maximize safety for patients. Absence of a pulse oximeter is one aspect of that, but there's far more to it. And so it's not as simple as, oh, we've met the, you know, every operating room in the world has a pulse oximeter. We're done. Close up shop. But rather, there's so much more work to do beyond that. We have developed a campaign around understanding these problems not as as equipment lacks, but rather as conditions. Uh, we, we call them the deadliest conditions. And so, for example, we have the condition of deoxygenosis, which is, it's not hypoxia, but it's the idea of an environment that contributes to patients having less than optimal monitoring and care while having anesthesia. The, the idea of what we call unsterilitis. It's not an infection itself, but rather the system and processes that have so many safety lapses that the rate of surgical site infection is much higher than it, it needs to be. Yeah. So what's stopping you from getting there? Well, I mean, th- th- there's a, a lot of answers. That one is money. You know, this, this work costs money. There's often an underappreciation for how to fund this kind of work. Um, traditionally, a lot of global surgery work has been sort of a volunteer effort, um, you know, people using their vacation time to go provide mission care. Yeah. Ultimately, that's not a model that's going to change the systems of care uh, around surgery around the world. It clearly can provide some much-needed education or care to local care providers. But until we develop resilient systems of care – that, that's really what's going to help improve it. I think there's a growing awareness around the importance of surgery in strong healthcare systems around the world um, amongst the public health community and also amongst the surgical community. But I think that awareness isn't quite where it, it could be. People see global surgery as a, a hobby or a dabbling rather than an enterprise. To me, I actually don't necessarily identify myself as a quote-unquote global surgeon. I'm someone who works in surgical safety, and that can be whether I'm doing work in Boston, work in South Carolina, or work in Ethiopia. It all focuses around the same principles of trying to ensure that we are doing everything we can to ensure that the systems that we have in place support providers in providing safe surgery and anesthesia care and optimize the outcomes for patients. That's great. Is there anything that we haven't covered? Well, I think, you know, in, in, in light of 
that idea of placing the work around LifeBox and Ariadne and global surgery in the context of a broader mission for surgical safety. It's been a very exciting 10 years now since the, the checklist was launched. Uh, it has become the part of care in a huge variety of places, but there's still so much more work to do to effectively develop systems of care and communication in the operating room. I think that the next 10 years, we'll see more work around how do we get teams to function as teams. It will be more work on trying to understand the processes in many, many different environments that expose patients to unnecessary risk when having potentially life-saving procedures. And we'll also be seeing a whole new quiver full of tools that are available to people working in really challenging situations. I think you know none of this is to really impugn the skill or dedication of surgeons in low-income countries. Quite the opposite, in fact. We often find extremely skilled surgeons, extreme dedication, but in a really tough situation because the, the systems aren't there. And a lot of the work that we're doing with the Clean Cut Project, uh, led by uh, Tom Weiser out of out of Stanford, um, is to help identify what is a template for how do you help people who are interested and motivated in improving the care qualities at their at, at their hospital to begin doing that when they can look so overwhelming from from the beginning and instead yeah. begin to see well where are the things that we can change what you know how do we map out the processes by which equipment drapes and patients arrive in the operating room and begin to say you know which are the the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, in terms of fixable things. Is it around the process of, you know, repairing gowns? Is it in the process of equipment processing? Is it in the process of delivering antibiotics at the right time? Is it in the process of ensuring that antibiotics are in stock at the hospital? All these are parts of the problem. And by beginning to give tools that allow providers, that allow hospital directors to begin to objectively and systematically look at the processes in place at their hospitals, I think there's a lot of opportunity to improve those situations. What's, what's been the, like the, over, the response from the you know, more, more overall global surgery community to this? Because I, I, I think that you hit, about, you hit on something there that um, for a lot of people, I think there's a misconception that when you go into these areas, they're completely reliant upon, you know, us. But like you say, there are very motivated and very capable providers that just don't have the tools they need in order to to make these changes. And you, you provide them with the right tools and then they're kind of off to the races and they, they do it on their own. Um, have you uh, see, seen or have you, is, has the overall global surgery community been kind of welcoming of this 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 type of philosophy? I mean, I think so. I think that a lot of the work, the, there's a, a growing knowledge and, and acceptance of the idea that, you know, global surgery isn't necessarily mission surgery. Right. That, yeah. that, that really what global surgery is about is about strengthening systems. And I, I don't want to underplay the workforce shortages that exist in many parts of the world because they certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the need for training programs, all those are really important. And there are people who are working on those and some of those are very much our partners in, in, um, delivering this kind of care. I mean, our, our, you know, we partner with people like Mercy Ships. Yeah. Um, we, uh, uh, with uh, Partners in Health and uh, Human Resources for yeah. Health. We, we really make a point of por- partnering with some of these organizations that are doing some of those other works. That work is really complementary to what 
what we do. I think there's a huge appreciation for the importance of this in the global surgery community, both the high-income country, but also in the local leaders in surgery and anesthesia. Our work in Ethiopia, for example, is being done in collaboration with really the leaders in surgical and anesthetic care provision in Ethiopia with a great hunger from the Ministry of Health to try and deploy this and trying to make this a part of, of really elevating the level of care. And so I think, you know, there's just such opportunity for, for synergy, and I think it's really rewarding to see people begin to see surgery as part of an ecosystem. And it works both ways. It's not just the surgeons understanding that it's part of systems, but it's also the ministers of health appreciating that surgery is important and worth investing in. That's great. That's really uh, really fascinating. It's a really good discussion and uh, very well-spoken on it, if I might say. Um, so if people want to find you guys – and more importantly, people want to donate to you guys. How do they go about doing that? Where can they find you? So the uh, Lifebox webpage is at www.lifebox.org. And if you want to add a backslash donate at the end of that, you can go straight to the uh, forward, forward slash. slash. Sorry, forward yeah, slash. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, you can go straight to the uh, donation page. Um, we are always looking for people to contribute to our, our mission. We're also always looking for collaborators and people who are interested in joining our team and help, helping out people who work in a, a environment where the there's a need for oximetry and training we're always interested to hear from people and um, we're always also interested in hearing from uh, eager researchers um, one of our our missions in lifebox is while we are not a research organization per se we try to position ourselves that we're also able to create generalizable knowledge to create a better understanding of how care systems are and how they can be improved. And so we're always looking for research collaborators as well to help us to, to work on these projects. Excellent. We'll be sure to put your website and everything in our show notes for this one. And uh, Sarah, do you want to give your, your Twitter handle? Find us on Twitter at, at Safer Surgery, uh, on Facebook at Lifebox Foundation. And, uh, and, I w- and I would add that we have a, a beautiful documentary about uh, about the checklist, really, about the the, this vision of what safe surgery does, can, should look like globally called the, the checklist effect very much inspired by the checklist manifesto from um, Atul Gawande and uh, and you can find more about that on our website too. It was, it was made for us by a, a director called Lauren Anders Brown who does beautiful work and I think committed a huge amount of her time in exchange for some incredible stories and, and, and very generous access to operating theatres around the world. Awesome. Excellent. And we'll, like I said, we'll be sure to link to all those resources uh, in our show notes. Well, uh, Dr. Haynes, Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Pleasure talking to you. Until next time, dominate the day.